This past week, I had breakfast with Charlie Donald. Some of you know Charlie. If you haven't had a chance to meet Charlie and Jeannie yet, I encourage you to get to know them. Relatively new members of our church in the last six or nine months. And as I often do, before I'm preaching a particular sermon, I'll, if I'm out with someone that week, I'll oftentimes open up the passage that I'm going to preach on and we'll look at it together because I want to have insights or questions from church members before I prepare the sermon. And Charlie immediately said, you know, if it weren't for this very first verse, John 3.16, I may not be a Christian right now. I said, well, tell me about it. He said, well, actually, it has to do with my father, Ed Donald. Charlie grew up in Scotland. He's Scottish. And his father, Ed Donald, was an elder in the Scottish Presbyterian Church. But Ed was not a Christian. He wasn't born again. Didn't know Christ as his Lord and Savior. And yet he served in that role as an elder in the church. One day, he was sitting in a pub in Scotland, and a friend of his who was a Christian engaged him in conversation about what it meant to follow Jesus as Lord and Savior. He began to share the gospel with him. And then at one point, this man turned to Ed and said, think of it like this, Ed. For God so loved Ed Donald that he gave his only begotten son that if Ed Donald believes in him, then Ed Donald shall not perish, but Ed Donald shall have everlasting life. And Ed Donald believed. And he turned to Christ in faith. And God has used Ed Donald to share the gospel with all of his ten children including Charlie. That verse, that first verse in our text this afternoon has surely been used of God in the salvation of millions of people throughout the last 2,000 years ever since John the Apostle, inspired by God, wrote it down. And perhaps he'll continue to work through that verse even today in our midst. We're continuing our study in the life and teachings of Jesus Christ as told by the Apostle John. John opened his gospel with an 18-verse summary that begins with the verse, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And in writing it that way, John was echoing the first verses of the Bible in Genesis. And therefore, he was telling us, that there is a new creation event happening when Jesus entered into this dark and rebellious world. A new creation event. We've learned how John the Baptist announced that Jesus was the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world and that He would baptize with the Holy Spirit, not just with water. And so disciples began to follow Jesus and believe in Him. And he performed his first miracle at the wedding where he transformed water into wine, giving a signal that he was the long-awaited Messiah and he would bring overflowing blessings with his rule and reign. 
but he also boldly challenged the corrupt use of the temple courts when he used a whip to drive out the animals and the money changers. Jesus would challenge the rebellion of the world. He said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And so already in chapter 2 of John's gospel, Jesus is using cryptic language to predict his death and his resurrection. And now in chapter 3, he's been approached by an overly confident religious ruler of the Jews named Nicodemus, and Jesus has rebuked him, saying, unless one is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Most of your Bibles will have quotation marks beginning with verse 16. And if your Bible has the words of Jesus in red, then your text will be in red right there in that first paragraph. But there are no quotation marks in the Greek manuscripts, which are the originals. And so the quotation marks and the red ink that you see in your Bible are put there by translators. So scholars debate whether verses 16 through 21 are Jesus' words or whether the Apostle John is now teaching us based on Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus. But either way, whether it's Jesus' own words or whether it's John's words inspired by Jesus, these are God's words because it's Scripture. And they are some of the most profound and important verses ever written. Turn with me to John 3.16, and we're going to be reading all the way through the end of the chapter to verse 36. Follow along with me as I read. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification, and they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. 
He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from above is above all. Who who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has, sent, has given all things into His hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Let's pray to the Lord together. Heavenly Father, enable us to have eyes and ears of faith to accept your word as true and perfect and applicable to us so that we believe them wholeheartedly and in your power live in obedience to them. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. The main message of these verses from 16 to 36 is that God sent Jesus Christ to save condemned people. God sent Jesus Christ to save condemned people. We're going to consider verses 16 to 21 first, and those verses can be summed up with the title, Jesus Saves Condemned People. That's the first point of three this afternoon. Jesus Saves Condemned People. If you look at verse 16, it begins with the word for. And so that tells us what follows in this verse is the basis or the foundation for what was stated before it. And so if we look back up in verses 14 and 15, we see that Jesus said there, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. So this is the foundation for what Jesus was saying about the Son of Man being lifted up so that people could have eternal life when they believed in Him. Jesus is giving us a mysterious preview that He will be nailed to a cross and lifted up to die on it. What's the reason for the Son of Man being lifted up on a cross to be crucified so that whoever believes in Him will get eternal life? What motivates this life-giving work of the Son of Man? It's the love of God for the world. The crucifixion of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins of anyone who believes in Him is God's supreme demonstration of love for the world. The Christian Standard Bible translation puts verse 16 like this. It says, For God loved the world in this way. He gave His one and only Son. God loved the world in this way. God gave His only Son. 
God gave up the one whom He had loved from eternity past. His Son, His very Son. The one through whom He had created all things and the one for whom all things were created. The Son who shared His glory with Him. The Son who had the fullness of the Father in Himself. The Son who had forever loved His Father perfectly in return. What is your view of God? Do you believe that God is a loving God? Do you believe that God has shown His love for the world in Christ? This verse teaches you and I that God's love is demonstrated best and most clearly in sending His Son. Sometimes we have distorted views of God. Some of us view God as if He were kind of a celestial engineer pulling all the levers and pushing the buttons just to keep the universe running. Some of us view God as if He were some kind of sheriff of the universe out to get people who make mistakes. But this verse tells us that God has shown us His love. He is a loving God. If I asked you, what's the evidence that God loves the world? Would your answer be, He sent Jesus? Verse 16 goes on to tell us that God gave Jesus to the world, not so that we would get a better life. He gave Him so that we wouldn't perish. Now, we're going to explore this perishing in just a few verses, but John has more to say about why God gave up His Son. In verse 17, he says that He didn't send His Son into the world to condemn the world. The mission of the Son initiated by the Father was a rescue mission. It was meant to save people through Jesus the Son. God sent Jesus Sending Jesus into the world wasn't God's first act of love toward the world, mind you. God showed love for the world when He created the world. Ever since then, He has shown love for the world by sustaining the world, providing for the world. Hebrews 1 tells us that He is upholding the universe by the word of His power. If He didn't do that, you and I, and the whole universe for that matter, would cease to exist. That's God's love in action as well. And now here, John is telling us that we can see God's love for the world in His sending Jesus, God's Son, into the world to save people. But all won't be saved. Who will be saved? Verse 16, whoever believes in Him. Verse 18, whoever believes in Him. Faith in God's Son is necessary to be saved by Him. Why is faith necessary? Why isn't it some other criteria for being saved? Faith is necessary because it was faith in God that was broken in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve ate of the fruit that the Lord had commanded them not to eat of. In taking the fruit and eating 
they were disbelieving God. And so the sin of unbelief is behind every other sin that has corrupted the world ever since. Adultery is fundamentally unbelief. Theft is a sin birthed from unbelief. Hatred is a sin undergirded by unbelief. And so it's belief or faith that's necessary for anyone to receive the salvation that God offers. Belief or faith in the Son of God sent is what gives a person eternal life. It's what enables us to be saved from perishing. Faith in Jesus is God's grand solution. But solutions are only needed when there's a problem, right? What is man's problem? Well, John tells us, all men and women stand condemned before God. Do you see that word repeated there in those verses? Condemned, condemned, condemned. Let me read verses 18 through 20 again just so you can hear it. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. Rejecting Jesus only adds to our condemnation. Even people who have never heard the gospel stand condemned. Verse 19 says, this is the judgment. People loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. God loved the world, but the world loved the darkness. God is the source of light, and we know from what we've already read in John so far that Jesus is the light, but people hated the light. In fact, they hated God. We hated God. You hated God. One commentator says, God's love is to be admired not because the world is so big, but because the world is so bad. That in and of itself, the wickedness of the world, the hatred of the world, the rebellion of the world, is what throws God's love into great relief. It's what makes it stand out. God loved a world that hated Him. It's easy to love people who love you. But God's love is different. Don't think for a moment that God loved the world because the world was lovable. It's the opposite. In the, in the rest of John's writings, when he uses the term the world, he means mankind in his rebellion against God, his hatred of God. And what John is teaching us here is that all people are born into rebellion against God. They sin constantly in their unbelief. And apart from God's saving work in Christ, everyone will be judged guilty and sentenced to experience the wrath and punishment of God for eternity. 
Maybe you think, wait a minute, Pastor Brian, (laughs) I'm not that bad. I mean, I do some morally good things. Those verses say the condemned people's works were evil and they do wicked things. That's not me, Pastor Brian. Well, who is it then? I mean, is it Vladimir Putin only? Is it Adolf Hitler only? Who are these evil and wicked people if they're not you and I? The problem is that we want to compare ourselves to other people to assess whether we're good or not. When I was a teenager, that's what I was doing, thinking that I was a Christian because I thought I was better than other people at my high school. But if we compare ourselves to God, if we compare ourselves to the holy, righteous, almighty God, we always fall short. Brothers and sisters in Christ, oh, friends, consider the Lord God Almighty. Compare yourself to Him. He created you in His image, which means He created you to walk in perfect righteousness. Every thought, a pure thought. Every word, a loving word. Every deed, a deed born of faith in Him. Every decision for His glory. Every step for His purposes. Every minute of every hour of every year of your life honoring Him. That's what you and I were created for. But left to ourselves, we're evil. We're wicked. We're sinful. Every part of us, every action, even those what we consider morally good deeds are tainted with sin and not faith in Him before we knew Christ. We were already condemned. Ephesians 2.3 says that apart from Christ, we were objects of wrath. Romans 2.5 says that apart from Christ, We were storing up wrath for ourselves on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment would be revealed. Do you believe this? Becoming a Christian doesn't just hinge on understanding that God has loved the world by sending Jesus. It also hinges on you believing that you need to be saved from God's condemnation and wrath. That's part of what you need to believe. If you think that you have a chance of justifying yourself on the day of judgment, if you think that you can defend yourself before God and win your case, you will be sorely disappointed. You will perish. If you don't believe that you'll be judged for your sin, then you have no need of being saved. There's nothing for for you to be saved from. Why would you need Jesus? But if you recognize your sinfulness and you know that you cannot do anything to erase your sin, to cover over it, to wipe it out, that you can't do what those verses in the prophet Micah promised that God would do to cast them into the depths of the sea, never to be seen again. You can't do that. And then we look at verse 21. But whoever does what is true 
comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that His works have been carried out in God. And so you will in God's power, not your own, but His power, when you hear the message of God's condemnation of sin and His love shown in Jesus Christ, you will begin to hate your sin rather than God and come into the light of Christ to love and believe in Him. That's what's on offer in the gospel. And your condemnation will be removed because He took your condemnation on the cross. There are these great words in this song that we sang, O fount of love, where it says, O mount of grace to thee we cling from the law hath set us free. The law condemns us, you know. Once and for all on Calvary's hill, love and justice shall agree. How did love and justice agree on Calvary's hill? Well, justice was being done because the wrath of God for anyone who trusts in Christ was being poured out on Christ, justice done, and the love of God was being shown because forgiveness was being offered to anyone who would believe in Him. Love and justice agreed on Calvary. Romans 8.1 summarizes what John is teaching us here. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Jesus saves condemned people. The next section of chapter 3 reveals another important conversation. And this one happened between John the Baptist and his disciples. And in that conversation... John the Baptist makes it clear that he's merely a messenger sent to announce Jesus because Jesus is the exalted Christ. Jesus is the exalted Christ. That's the second point this afternoon in the sermon, and we see it in verses 22 through 30. After Jesus had His nighttime meeting with Nicodemus in Jerusalem, He took His disciples out to the countryside, and they were baptizing John the Baptist was also still baptizing people with his disciples, and John's disciples got into a discussion about purification issues. I mean, the Jews had lots of purification rituals that they went through. We're not told the details of the discussion, but what's important is that that discussion sparked jealousy of Jesus and his disciples in the hearts of John the Baptist's disciples. And so they go to John and they tell him in verse 26, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. We're not gaining nearly as big a crowd, John. Jesus is gaining all the crowd. And so John sets them straight that this is what was supposed to happen. He reminds them that his testimony was that He wasn't the Christ, the Messiah, which means anointed one sent from God. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Christ. And in verse 29, He uses language of a bride and a bridegroom and a friend of the bridegroom. He says that He's only the friend of the bridegroom. We could say John is the best man to the bridegroom. Jesus is the bridegroom, and He is the one 
who therefore gets the bride. He's the one whom the friend of the bride rejoices with. The friend of the bridegroom doesn't want the attention at a wedding. If he does, he shouldn't have been the best man to the bridegroom in the first place. John's using language from the Old Testament. He's not just making up this little analogy about a bride, a bridegroom, and a friend of the bridegroom. Throughout the Old Testament, God is depicted as the bridegroom and the nation of Israel, His bride. And they've entered into a covenant with one another like a husband and wife, it describes in the Old Testament. So, for example, in Isaiah 62, verse 5, it says, And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you, Israel. Speaking to Israel through the prophet Hosea, God says in Hosea chapter 2, I will take you to be my wife forever. I will take you to be my wife in righteousness, justice, love, and compassion. I will take you to be my wife in faithfulness, and you will know the Lord. That's a married kind of knowing, by the way. In answer to their frustration and jealousy of Jesus, John tells his disciples that with Jesus' coming, his joy is complete. He sums up his answer to them in verse 30. Look at that verse. He must increase, but I must decrease. If you know and truly believe Jesus to be the Messiah, the Christ sent from our loving God, you will want your life to make much of Jesus and be less and less and less about you. Would your non-Christian friends and colleagues say that you talk too much about Jesus? That'd be a nice problem to have. Maybe that'd be a good thing for us. Are you quick to downplay or rather trumpet any successes or accomplishments? Who gets the credit for your skills and abilities? John says that anything that someone receives is only given to them from heaven. What about your social media? Who or what does it say about Jesus? Does it say anything about Jesus? You know, even as a whole church, together, we should want to decrease and have Jesus increase. We don't want so much the name of Covenant Hope Church to be known. We want the name of Jesus to be known. Next Sunday is our fifth anniversary, and we're going to have some opportunity to recount God's faithfulness to us. I want to encourage you to be thinking this week about what you could say during some of the sharing time to exalt Jesus and His work in you and through us as a whole church. Let's give the praise to Jesus. Now, it was John the Baptist's great joy and privilege to exalt Jesus and not himself because of who Jesus was. 
He was the one and only Son of the loving Father sent to save condemned people. Jesus is the exalted Christ. And as we move into the last six verses of chapter 3, the Apostle John is bringing together threads of truth from Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus and John the Baptist's exaltation of Jesus as the Christ. And we can sum it up by saying, God's Son gives eternal life. That's point number three this afternoon. God's Son gives eternal life. We see it there in verses 31 through 36. In verse 31, John echoes John the Baptist's point that Jesus is the exalted Christ and therefore fundamentally different than all the prophets sent before Him. He's come down from heaven and is therefore above all people. John the Baptist is merely of the earth and speaks in an earthly way. Earlier in chapter 3, Jesus said, If I have told you about earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. He's saying, I've come from heaven and I have heavenly things to tell you. John's saying, I'm just telling you earthly things. Whatever Jesus says is wisdom directly from heaven and therefore directly from God. Verse 34, he whom God has sent utters the words of God. Jesus' message and testimony is fundamentally different. When you hear Jesus speak, you're hearing God speak. Jesus never says like the prophet said, thus says the Lord, and then he speaks. No, no. He simply says, truly, truly, I say to you. He simply speaks, and you and I hear the words of God. When you hear the words of Jesus preached or you read the words of Jesus in Scripture, do you take them as the words of God Himself? They are. Jesus' words should carry that kind of weight with you. There is no one's words that you should take more seriously than Jesus' words. Weigh them carefully. It's dangerous for you to dismiss the words of Jesus. If you do take them lightly or even dismiss them altogether, you're disregarding God speaking to you. It's like you're turning your back on Him. We can even say that if you disbelieve Jesus' words, it's the same as calling God a liar. It says that in 1 John chapter 5. Everyone who rejects the true words of Jesus is calling God a liar. And yet, that's mostly what happens in the world. Jesus' words get dismissed. His testimony isn't accepted. That's what it says in verse 32. John even uses hyperbole and exaggeration. He says, no one receives his testimony. People can say they believe in and love Jesus, but if they made Jesus out to be someone that he's not, then they're rejecting the true Jesus, the Jesus of Scripture. Sometimes people make him out to be the be a better person Jesus. The Jesus 
who just gives good advice for how to be a better husband or wife or employee. The live your best life now, Jesus. That's not the Jesus of Scripture. Sometimes he's made out to be the just another messenger from God, Jesus. When people make Jesus out to be that kind of Jesus, they're often eager to say that it doesn't matter whether you believe in Islam or Hinduism or Christianity. Jesus leads Christians to God, just like Muhammad leads Muslims to God, or Ganesh leads Hindus to God, or Joseph Smith leads Mormons to God. But that's not the Jesus of Scripture either. The Jesus of Scripture is an exclusive Jesus. He is the only God, the only one come down from God and speaking the words of God. Most people in the world reshape Jesus to be who they want Him to be. And that's why John says, no one receives His testimony. Have you made Jesus out to be something other than who He is in Scripture? Is your Jesus, the one you believe in, this Jesus that says these things, hard things? John is using some exaggerated language to say in another way what he taught in verse 19. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness. They don't want to come to the Jesus, to this Jesus, and take his words seriously because his words convict them. His words expose their sin. And they don't like that. But John tells us that although the rejection of Jesus will be the typical response, still some will receive His testimony. Praise God. And whoever receives His testimony about mankind's sinfulness and God's way of salvation through the Son are saying, in effect, God is true. God is right. God speaks truth about me. And Jesus is God's only Son sent to save us. I believe that. Did you notice that all three persons of the Trinity are mentioned in verse 34? Look there. For the one whom God sent speaks God's words. That's Jesus, of course, the one whom God sent. Since He gives the Spirit without measure. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit all involved in the revelation of God and the redemption of people. Verse 35 and 36 draw chapter 3 to a close with an all-important message. Look there with me. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life but the wrath of God remains on him. John has circled back to the key teaching about mankind and God's beloved Son, Jesus. All people are sinful and therefore condemned to experience God's wrath, God's eternal punishment. John Stott says about God's wrath, That it's neither an impersonal process of cause and effect, as some scholars have tried to argue, nor a passionate, arbitrary, or vindictive outburst of temper 
That's not who God is. It's not God losing control. But it is this. His holy and uncompromising antagonism to evil with which He refuses to negotiate. One day His judgment will fall, John Stott goes on to say. It is from this terrible event that Jesus is our deliverer. Your eternal destiny hinges on what you do with Jesus. It's that simple. What you believe about Jesus is the most important thing in your life. But make sure that you understand what John means when he uses the word believe. John says in that last half of verse 36, whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. John has written, whoever does not obey in parallel but opposite to whoever believes. And so you'll see that John uses different words to mean the same thing. And so believing in Jesus equals receiving in Jesus equals obeying Jesus. It's easy for someone to say they believe in Jesus and therefore they're Christians and they're saved from the coming judgment. But believing in Him means receiving Him as Lord and King of your life every day. It means obeying Him in all that He says. If you're not a Christian, I'm so glad you're here to hear these verses. John wants you to see that to believe in Him is to obey Him. It's not simply to check the box, yes, I believe in Him. It's to walk out of here with the intention of obeying Him, trusting Him, seeing Him as your King. If this message of salvation has rung true to you, if you see that you stand condemned before God for your sin, if you're recognizing that the words of Jesus are the words of God, are you ready to believe in Him? Are you ready to hand over the keys of your life to Him, so to speak? Receive Him as Lord and King? Set out to obey Him all your life? If so, you can do that right now. Simply tell Him. Maybe in a silent prayer to yourself. Jesus, I've sinned against You. And I believe that You went to the cross for the forgiveness of my sins. I believe in You. Help me follow you all the days of my life. So a prayer just like that. It doesn't even have to be those, those words. And if you do that, tell us as a church or tell a friend that brought you here, a friend who's a Christian. Becoming a Christian is a deeply personal experience, but it should never be a private experience. Tell us you've trusted in Christ's word on the cross, and let us celebrate the eternal life that He's given you. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this chapter is a brilliant summary of the good news of the gospel that we believe. The whole thing has been the gospel, and it should never get old to you. It should never be stale to you. You should never tire of hearing it. 
Think of all the sins in your life that Christ is no longer counting against you. Even this past week, maybe even today, if you sinned, you have a Savior. Jesus saves condemned people. Jesus is the exalted Christ. And God's Son gives eternal life. These truths are our hope and joy, brothers and sisters. If you know Christ as Lord and Savior, who was it who shared the message of John 3.16 like that Scottish man shared with Charlie Donald's father in Scotland in that pub so many decades ago? Who was it? Don't let a day go by without praising God for saving you from the wrath of God. And pray that the Lord would use you to share this glorious message of salvation with everyone around you, motivated by the love of God that He's put into your heart for the very same world that is rebelling against Him. For God so loved the world in this way, He gave His one and only Son so that everyone who believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise You that You loved us when we hated You. We praise You that You've shown us Your love in this way. You sent Your Son into the world to die on the cross for our forgiveness so that our condemnation would be removed. We praise you for that. In Christ's name, amen. No guilt in life. No.